Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Food writer, chef, and cookbook author Anne Byrne has taught us about American history and culture by exploring the origins of our favorite desserts in the cookbooks American Cake and American Cookie. Her latest cookbook is A New Take on Cake. Ahead of her bookstore appearances in Atlanta tomorrow, Anne Byrne tells us why she is unapologetic about using cake mixes as the basis for her revised take on delicious recipes. Layers are also central to recent artwork by Shaniqua Gay. She loves using collage as a technique for storytelling in works now on view at two Atlanta galleries. Up first, the second family of the United States of America now has a special connection with a historic Atlanta synagogue, a mezuzah is a parchment inscribed with religious texts and attached in a small ornamental case to the doorpost of a Jewish house as a sign of faith, the abiding sign of the sanctity of a Jewish home. Now, for the first time in U.S. history, a mezuzah has been placed on the residence of a nationally elected leader of our country, the vice president's official home at the Naval Observatory. And there is a local connection. Here to tell us more via Zoom is Rabbi Peter Berg, the senior rabbi of the temple, the Reformed Jewish congregation on Peachtree in Midtown. Rabbi, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Please tell us the story of a mezuzah's journey from the temple to the vice president's official residence at number one observatory circle. It's a fun story. I received a call not too long after the vice president moved to Washington, not yet in the new home, because I think there was some construction going on. And the call, I I thought it was a phony phone call. I thought it was my brother-in-law playing a (laughs) trick on me because the caller said, we're calling from, on behalf of a high profile couple that recently moved to Washington and they uh, want to hang a mezuzah. And once I realized it was not my brother-in-law, it was pretty quickly clear that it was the vice president and the, the second gentleman, the first Jewish second gentleman. They told me that they were sourcing uh, the caller mezuzahs, mezuzot in plural, because they wanted to hang a, a meaningful one on the Naval Observatory. And they were looking at Jewish museums and institutions and synagogues. And so I quickly wrote up a 10-page paper with the history of the temple. And I took pictures of every mezuzah I could find in the building. And I sent in this report. And and I really didn't hear anything for a long time. 
Then the vice president was speaking in Atlanta. She launched her vaccination tour here. And I got invited to attend and it was standing room only, but there were 10 or so reserve seats. You know, the U.S. senators were there and a few others. And I, I never to this day know how I got that invitation. But I after the speech, everyone took a took a picture and we lined up in numerical order and I was last. And they told me that I would have 10 or 15 minutes to speak with the vice president. So naturally, I did what anyone would do. I talked about Israel and anti-Semitism and social justice and the temple's history, you know, the lynching and hanging of Leo Frank, who was a temple member, about the 1958 temple bombing, about driving Miss Daisy, about honoring Dr. King at the first integrated dinner when he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. We talked about the two uh, homeless shelters that my predecessor, Rabbi Sugarman, started, and, and the, the ongoing work of social justice that we do every day here at the temple. You know, her handlers be, began to tell me it's time to leave. And I turned around and said, what about the mezuzah? And the <laughs> vice president said, if I told him once, I told him a hundred times, referring to her husband, he's got to pick the mezuzah already. And it was a funny moment filled with levity. And, and again, I heard nothing. And then, um, the first week of October, I got the call. We have selected the temple. We want you to come to Washington and hang the mezuzah. And I did. Oh, how marvelous. What were your impressions of Vice President Harris and Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman? Well, first of all, the second gentleman was so unbelievably proud to be the first Jewish second gentleman. It just was this beautiful emotional feeling that he expressed. And many people saw it. He, you know, he's put out messages for Hanukkah and Passover and Rosh Hashanah, but he was particularly proud to hang this mezuzah on the front door for the first time that every time they walked through that door, which is every, you know, every single day that they would see. And we talked a lot. We even played Jewish geography. He grew up 15 minutes apart from me in New Jersey. So we oh, really? we had a lot of similarities there. But he, he was just, just very, very, very proud. And at the ceremony itself, both the vice president and the second gentleman spoke off the cuff about what this moment meant uh, in U.S. history, what it meant uh, for the Jewish people. They were both very, very proud. Would you tell us more about that? ceremony for which you flew to Washington. What did the ceremony entail? You know, I, I wrote a ceremony. Traditionally, the hanging of a mezuzah requires two blessings, one to affix the mezuzah and one to celebrate reaching a new joyous occasion, doing something for the first time. So, you know, it could have been just those two simple blessings. But I, of course, um, embellished the ceremony. I had parts for the second gentleman and the vice president and for his parents, because one of the highlights was that Mr. Amhoff's parents had visited his son and, and the vice president for the first time since COVID. They hadn't seen each other in almost two years, hadn't seen the Naval Observatory yet, hadn't seen him in this role yet. So we both actually arrived at the Naval Observatory at the same time. And the pride in his parents' face was worth everything. It was really just a moment I'll never forget. But we said uh, a special prayer over, over the wine, the Kiddush prayer, and uh, we all said L'chaim together to life. And um, I spoke again about the temple. I also spoke about the reason why the mezuzah is hung diagonally, not vertically and not horizontally. And it was, it's an old rabbinic debate about which way the mezuzah should be hung. And the rabbis compromised on diagonal, suggesting that a home should be filled with compromise. Shalom bayit, it's called, peace in the home. And I explained this to the second family and, and it, it, they were just so intrigued by it and the significance of what it means to walk into a home filled with peace. And I remember the vice president saying explicitly, family means everything. That always will stick with me. How beautiful. I enjoyed reading, I guess it was soon after the presidential election. Mr. Emhoff's children called the vice president Mamala. Yes. Did that yeah. nickname come up at 
the ceremony you attended? It didn't. It didn't. Uh, <laughs> I have heard that story before, but I, but it didn't didn't come up there. What will it mean for the temple when that mezuzah returns? One thing that's interesting is that you know we have two front doors. There's sort of two glass doors, and each one has a mezuzah. You only really need one for the two of them because it's really essentially the, the same door. So we actually have the matching one on the door now. The same one that appears at the Naval Observatory now appears on our front door. And of course, we loaned it for the duration of the second family's time in Washington. And uh, so eventually we will we'll get that mezuzah back. And will of course display it proudly. The vice president and second gentleman also signed the hammer that we used uh, and gave it to me as a gift. So we'll we'll display all of that together because it really is a a unique moment in US history. Oh. Rabbi Berg, it has added meaning for me to have you on City Lights during the Festival of Lights. Happy Hanukkah and many thanks for sharing this rich story and beautiful tribute. Thank you so much for having me. To all of those who celebrate, I wish you a happy Hanukkah. And for our entire world and our entire country, may it be a season filled with light and happiness and hope. Rabbi Peter Berg of the Temple in Atlanta. More information about the temple's mezuzah, which is currently hanging outside of the second family's Washington, D.C. home, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, life is about to get sweeter as Anne Byrne joins us to discuss her latest cookbook, A New Take on Cake. You're tuned to WABE at last. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Food writer, chef, and cookbook author Anne Byrne has taught us about American history and culture by exploring the origins of our favorite desserts in her cookbooks, American Cake and American Cookie. Her latest cookbook is A New Take on Cake. Anne Byrne will give an in-store talk and book signing in Atlanta tomorrow, December 4th, at Acapella Books, with another area appearance at Foxtail Bookshop in Woodstock. Ahead of those events, she joins me now via Zoom Anne Byrne, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Great to be here. Oh, it's always great to talk with you. Now, this new book is reminiscent of your first cookbook, The Cake Mix Doctor, which was a huge success after its release in 1999. What's new about this take on cake? A lot. First of all, I've changed, and due to those books that you mentioned. I wrote the Cake Mix Doctor book in 99 when I had three young children under the age of 10, and my life was frantic, 
And I had been a gourmet cook all my life, had reviewed restaurants, had studied cooking in Paris, but I don't think anything prepared me for, for having children, three children, and, and just getting by and, and not being perfect. And, you know, so what if I used a box of cake mix, you know, I threw on a homemade frosting. So I wrote that book very unapologetically and naively in 99. I had no idea that it would be as successful as it is. But, you know, through the years, I've taken the time out to, you know, study the history of cake in our country and the people who've made it. And I think it's given me a deeper appreciation for baking. And through those years too, my, my kids are now grown. You would think I don't need to bake anymore, but I do. I still do. <laughs> I love it. And so I think that I've changed. I wanted to revisit the cake mix doctor one more time and say, you can still use a box of mix, but you don't have to use as much frosting. You can make the cake vegan if you want. You can make it gluten-free. There's so many interesting pans you should probably use to bake the cake in. And it really is a new take on cake. Mm -hmm. You studied cooking in Paris at a classic French cooking school. You did further study and learned from no less than Julia Child and Marcello Hazan. Quite a pedigree, Anne. And I imagine chefs such as those two frowning upon using a boxed cake mix. And yet, as you said, you were unapologetic. You championed the idea of starting a lavish dessert recipe with a cake mix. And I loved reading that one reader even thanked you for writing a feminist cookbook. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think until you live the life, you know, whatever it is, and when you live a busy life or on the flip side of that, you have shortcomings, perhaps you lose a job and you have to economize. I think until people step into those shoes, do they really understand what it's like to get by, make do, rely on the economy of a cake mix, rely on the speed of a cake mix? And that's really where this book came from, because I felt like I had the experience to go back and tackle the cake mix doctor again, not, not really for me this time, but for everybody else. And I learned so much in the process because I realized how many people rely on a cake mix because they don't know how to bake. They haven't had the luxury that I have, I have had, you know, going to cooking school in Paris or having a mother who was a great baker. They didn't have, they don't have that. They don't have the money to spend on fancy heirloom flowers and uh, pricey ingredients. They just need to bake something. And they're young and they want to impress their friends, but they don't know how to bake. Then they see beautiful cakes on Instagram and they want to make those. Those are the people I wrote this book for. Well, you write about choosing the proper cake mix for the best results, and I appreciated that portion of the book, and because I've shied away from mixes and brownies, which I adore. I think brownies may be my favorite food of all time. <laughs> but I agree. I, I know mixes, there always seem to be I don't know how I would describe it, a, a sort of a chemical taste to identify. And, and you write about what we should look for in a cake mix that produces a natural taste. Yes. In the first cake mix, Doctor, uh, there were just revelations in there, like add orange juice, use peanut butter. I mean, there were certain ingredients you could add to a cake and nobody would ever believe it started with a mix. This time around, you know, I knew a lot of that, but I think what I was set out to do was, was to retest about 50 of the classic cake mix doctor recipes and make them work for the cake mix that is on the shelf today. And when I say the cake mix, I mean, you know, the big three, Betty Crocker, Duncan Hines, and Pillsbury. Of those three, Betty Crocker, butter flavor, without a doubt, is the cake mix I use. If I have to just pull a box of cake, and I'm not paid anything by Betty Crocker, believe me. <laughs> but if I have to, you know, make a pound cake, make an almond cream cheese pound cake or Stacy's chocolate chip cake, that's the one I pick because I believe it has 
It doesn't have a chemical taste and it doesn't have all the food coloring in it. So it's interesting, but that's me. There are a lot of people out there that think the cake mix tastes, tastes good because they either like it, Lois, or that's the way they were raised. For example, Christina Tosi, who is very famous, you know, New York pastry chef, Mama Fuku, Milk Bar, cookbooks, television. She loves the taste of yellow cake mix. In fact, she bakes off yellow cake mix on a sheet pan in a hot oven and then puts it into her buttercream frostings to make what she calls cake mix frosting. So I have learned with this book that there are a lot of folks whose frame of reference is different than mine. And, and maybe all along, I was trying to match my grandmother's pound cake and really create you know, these from scratch tasting cakes that you would never believe started with a cake mix. But there are a lot of people who like the taste of cake mix. I've received letters and emails from them as well. But you say it's pretty much a good idea to avoid cake mixes with artificial ingredients and alcohol. Well, it's hard to, you cannot avoid a cake mix with, you know, without artificial ingredients. I mean, they're just not going to be there. There are some natural cake mixes on, on the grocery store shelf, a few of them. But honestly, the baking aisle at the supermarket is all about high turnover. Those cake mixes are very affordable for a reason. There's just a lot of, not a lot of profit margin there for supermarkets. Their profit margin is on the perimeter of the store, you know, over in produce and in meat and in dairy. So really anything on the interior of the store, you're just dealing with, and that's probably a lot too much information, but that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. And as far as you know, alcohol, I think, I think there's something I do mention in the book about not to, to prep a pan with Pam and some of this. Oh. Yeah, because that Pam contains propellants, which are alcohols, and that raises the temperature of your pan. So I know it's kind of confusing, Pam and Pam, um, but, but when it goes into the oven, then that makes the cake pan bake hotter. And that's where the edges of your yellow cake may get kind of dark. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with food writer and author Anne Byrne about her latest cookbook, A New Take on Cake. What are some of the new strategies you employ with A New Take on Cake? Well, right up front of the book, I tell you that I am, this book is for everybody, but it, it also includes gluten-free, vegan, people baking on a budget, people wanting smaller cakes for smaller households, and people who want less sugar. So I use different pans. I use skillets. I use springform pans. I bake bunt cakes in a 10-inch loaf pan, which I love, because you don't, you don't need to frost those cakes. You know, it's an old school way of baking a cake in a loaf pan. Or, you know, people in the South, you know, baked pound cakes in loaf pans. You know, Starbucks maybe has made them more popular. But I think less frosting is a big theme. Less frosting. My frosting recipes are a, a little bit smaller because you'll notice in the pictures, and there's a picture for every recipe, you'll see that oftentimes I will frost a layer cake with barely naked sides, where I actually frost the sides of the cake and then I pull it back off so that you have enough frosting to coat the sides and to sort of keep them a little bit covered, but not so much that you mask what is underneath. And so I think it's actually a much more beautiful cake to see a red velvet cake frosted with just sort of barely naked white cream cheese frosting. So you can kind of see the red layers inside. So new pans, a lot of new ingredients. I had not baked with coconut milk before, and I absolutely love it. Canned coconut milk is such a great substitute for whole milk in the fridge. And honestly, I like it better. I think it makes a nicer batter and it's really super useful with uh, vegan cakes. So th that for sure, I've got some egg substitutes kind of running through the book. You know, if you are, if you're trying to, you know, bake egg less then you know, applesauce, how to make an aquafaba, which is beating the chickpea liquid that the liquid that's left in a can of chickpeas. So I really took, I really took some stretches with this book and looked ahead 
and said, this is the way we're going to be baking. I'm very surprised that 20 years later, people are still using cake mixes. I would have thought 20 years ago, we would have all been baking from scratch by now. We would have been living in that perfect world. But I don't think there is that perfect world yet. And your idea of perfect and mine and everybody else's is different. And, and, I, and I will say then too, what was really refreshing about this book is that I did not get any flack for writing it. And I've had open arms since it has come out, which is very different than 20 years ago. And, and I'm just wondering, Lois, if, if it's not because, you know, people just don't care if you start with a cake mix anymore. It was, it's not a battle worth fighting. We have bigger problems in this country and we have so much polarization that I find it just refreshing that there is something that we don't need to argue about. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you're, you're baking a cake, you know, so what if you start with a cake mix? Mm. Among those ingredients that you've discovered more recently, in addition to coconut milk, I liked reading that one of your go-to ingredients is Nutella. Nutella. Nutella is a lot of fun to bake with. I put it into frostings because you just don't need to do much. I've got a peanut butter and Nutella frosting with just a little bit of um of powdered sugar, maybe a tad bit of vanilla. That's about it. And it makes it just a yummy glaze or spread that can go on the top of a, a cake, a vegan cake. I love it. I add it to chocolate cake mix and a few other ingredients and make a chocolate loaf cake. So it's super dense, really intensely flavored with chocolate and hazelnuts. It's, it's a really fun substitute. And I believe it's something that's in a lot of kitchens today. Yeah, and that is interesting, too, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nutella wasn't American to begin with. Exactly. People who had traveled to Europe, you know, were well aware of Nutella, but you're right. It's more of a fixture now. And I think the almond butters as well, that's another ingredient that you can use in my recipes. And the different types of citrus. We're kind of going into citrus season that'll stay with us through winter. And it's a great way to use clementines, different kinds of oranges, blood oranges, things that may not be available or may not as taste as good other times of the year to bake with them now. I've got a recipe in the back of the book. It's for a curd, how to make just a basic fruit curd. It's like a formula. And you can use any citrus fruit there, limes, lemons, grapefruit, orange. And then you just need X amount of juice to go along with the butter and the eggs and the sugar and to make a curd. And that goes between the layers of a cake and it, it makes a lovely cake, like the clementine cake that's in the book. It's, it's sort of the juice of the clementines flavors the batter of the cake. Then you make the curd and then you make a really light uh, little clementine buttercream frosting to go around the sides. It's nice. Buttercream. One of the <laughs> creations of the gods or a creation the gods smile down upon. Yes, I agree. But they can often be too sweet. People will find that I've got less sugar in my buttercreams than I ever have. Often some of them call for a pinch of salt. Now, a pinch of kosher salt, I think, brings out the flavor and cuts the sweetness of a lot of buttercream. So I definitely dive back into frostings because frostings are important. Oh, yeah. And I like this, I don't know if you'd call it a little mantra, but sort of a recurring theme you have is you dial up flavor and dial down sweet. Mm-hmm. It's very much the way that think people are baking and eating now, you know, and I consulted with my daughters. My daughters are now 27 and 31. So they were a big part of the, we should say, behind the scenes of this book. When I was in the kitchen and I was wondering, you know, what to add, what would be fresh, what would be new, you know, I got in touch with them. And, you know, they were the ones who said, oh, tahini, mom, got to use tahini with chocolate chips. And there were just certain flavors, you know, that they use and they gravitate to. And I think it is more of a savory flavor uh, versus sweet. I think also that's why cream cheese frostings, you know, have been so popular. And I've got a mascarpone cheese kind of variation of the cream cheese frosting in this book because it is less sweet. So you can kind of let the sweetness stay in the cake but you don't want necessarily the frosting to be so sweet. Mm -hmm. Early, you explained that 
you wanted this recipe collection to be inclusive. And I was delighted to see that inclusive also meant you didn't overlook cookies in this book. And <laughs> we, yes, and it seems, Lois, that I have overlooked them in the past and I have been corrected. The cookie monsters out there have gotten in oh. touch with me through the years and just wondered why I didn't share more cookie recipes. So I have a whole chapter on cookies and bars and had no idea really how much people love a cake mix to jumpstart cookies. But they do, and I believe the reason is you can double, triple batch them. You can make a lot. If you're baking for, you know, for an event, for a charity, for your church, for the homeless shelter. I mean, if you're doing something nice for other people, a cake mix cookie recipe is a great way to get started because you don't have a lot of prep. You can double, triple batch it. You can turn out cookies, and they are a very moist and chewy cookie which I didn't know either. So if there's a whole world, and in fact, if you kind of Google the hashtags on cake mix, the next one that pops up is cake mix cookies. So wow. they are popular. Well, you had me at almond sandwich cookies. Would you, <laughs> would you describe those? <laughs> yes, that was sheer experimentation. And we had a lot of that in this book. And this was all put together, this book was put together in 2020. So it was all done in how we were operating in 2020. It was crazy. And I was looking for something different along the lines of an almond cookie. And I remembered using an angel food cake mix for a couple of cakes in the first Cake Mix Doctor. So I wondered if they were still available. So I think when my husband was texting me or something like, I'm at the store, you know, what do you need? Get it now kind of feeling. I said, look for angel food cake mix. Is it still made? So he came home with one. I said, I wonder if I can just add almonds to this, you know, some kind of liquid. Can I get to a cookie? And so we made them and then made them again and again and again and came up with a sort of an, a macaroon kind of chewy almond cookie, delicious. It makes a ton. So I said, because it made so many, I said, let's sandwich them. So you need two for each cookie. So we made a chocolate buttercream. And you have said that in your job at the Atlanta Journal, where you wrote for many years, you learned that to excel at food writing, you must understand what the reader needs to know. Mm. What would you like readers to know about your love for cooking? I think cooking and baking brings a lot of joy and love into a home. And it is a way of sharing a bit of yourself with other people. If you do it long enough, you know, and you enjoy it, it becomes a skill. And then it becomes a part of, you know, who you are. And it's such a smart thing to, you know, for young people to, to give that thought and to say, you know, I want to be that person. I want to be the one who bakes the cake to thank somebody. I want to be the one who bakes the cake to, to bring into the office for the birthday. There are those people and they enjoy baking and they enjoy cooking and they see it, this as a way of sharing a bit of themselves. So that's what I would say, you know, at, at the stage in my life that I am and reflecting back, I've been very fortunate to, to write and to work in a field that I not only enjoy, but that I get to eat. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's been wonderful. Best-selling cookbook author and former Atlanta Journal-Constitution food editor, Anne Byrne. She'll speak and sign copies of A New Take on Cake tomorrow, December 4th, at Acapella Books in Atlanta, and later at Foxtail Books in Woodstock. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, artist Shaniqua Gay discusses her new collection of work, If I Were Not Here. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This 
City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Inspired by her ancestors and Southern Black traditions, Shaniqua Gay has created 15 new pieces of artwork called If I Were Not Here. The pieces are on view now at Maison Hideoki on Peachtree Road through December 9th. Concurrently, she has a selection of photo collage works on view at Jackson Fine Art Gallery through December 23rd. Shaniqua Gay joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Hi. Shaniqua, please tell us about the title of your exhibit, If I Were Not Here. If I Were Not Here, I Would Have to Be Invented uh, actually came from just thinking about histories, the makeup of a person and fantasy and lore. My work is steep in those things. And just thinking about what if a person were not here? And I believe it is the human condition, right? We're very addicted to storytelling. Like we are the only creature, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, lives off the narrative. And so what does it mean to create the things that are not here, that are not present? And so if I were not here, I would have to be invented. Hmm. And why did you want to create these works in a collage format? Collage is a disruptive uh, medium. It is not the a mainstream medium. Uh, I would even argue and say that it, it is possibly feminine <laughs> uh, because it does not go along with everyday structures. It is the language of deconstruction if you will, uh, is the language of destroying, piling on one thing to another. When you look at collages, they are their own um, makeup or own kind of hybridity, if you will. And because my work is already steeped in in the hybrid, I was like, well, how how can I further this narrative? How can I take it further? Um, Collage is not anything that's foreign to my body of work. It's just not necessarily anything I've been intentional Because by and large, if you think about hybrids, hybrids are kind of collaging, right? And so I was doing a residency at Stoveworks in Chattanooga and at the top of the fall. And I only had a a very few mediums and materials that I could take with me. And so that was, I took paper, I took graphite, watercolor, and um, some collage papers. And I, I began to play. My work is steeped in play. <laughs> and so just, just in playing, I began to compile these images, just begin to take this kind of new direction with my work, which I really love. And I'm curious about how you created these collages. Did you photograph the girls first and then add paper and paint? I did. I did. The girls are actually images I took... Uh, back in 2018 at Perkinson Park. Uh, Perkinson Park is a, a place I used to play at as a child. And I was actually doing research for another project <laughs> and came upon these children just everywhere. They were playing in water at Perkinson Park. And it was really, uh, while my direction was towards something else, I began to take pictures of these, these girls and uh, kind of came upon these files when I was in Chattanooga and I was just like, oh, this is joy. This is fun. And um, yeah, yeah. So I, I photographed the images, began to uh, compile sketches of them. And then, yeah, began to take this direction of placing layers on top of them. Um, history, things from uh, possibly futures, things from present, things from my past, um, began to develop these works. Hmm. What can you tell us about this fantasy place or fictional place at Lana Land? <laughs> um, you know what? I I am a, a, a 80s baby, a late 70s, 80s baby. <sighs> so I grew up over off of what I guess is now called Metropolitan. I grew up off of Stewart Avenue. And, you know, as my family kind of hopped around between Atlanta, College Park, and finally landing in Riverdale, one of the great things about, especially the 80s, was just 
for me, I was bombarded with fantasy. Movies like The NeverEnding Story. Oh, yes. <laughs> the Goonies. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz, The Wiz, just, just any of those. Uh, just being able to see uh, Alice in Wonderland, my all absolute favorite, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Yeah, so like just any any of that, I, I so desire to uh, see reflections of myself in these fantasies and, and um, very rarely did I ever. And so um, what does it mean to create a fantasy land? And what does it mean to create a fantasy land of a place that you're actually familiar with? I'm really interested in the lore um, that a lot of people have about Atlanta, like as though Atlanta is like the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. If I could only get to Atlanta, all things in my life would change. <laughs> ah, the golden ticket. Yes, Atlanta as the golden Delta ticket, right? <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I thought it, but you said yes, it. Yes, if I could get the Delta ticket to Atlanta, my life would change. And so I, I love that lore. I have friends who moved here back in like the late 90s. They moved here uh, because of Freaknik. And they never, they never return home. And so this thought process that all things in my life will change if I could only get to Atlanta, I began to think about Atlanta land and calling it Atlanta because natives very rarely use the T. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and creating my own Atlanta land and thinking about uh, the things that have happened here and, you know, the tropes that kind of come with being uh, specifically a Black Atlanta native, I began to investigate and interrogate my friends and ask them, like, give me 10 things that you feel like are the, the makeup of Atlanta. I, I got like over uh, probably about 300 words, <gasps> and, wow. you know, which included things like lemon pepper wings. <laughs> which included watermelon, which included Cascade Skate, you know. Um, I was thinking, okay, Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King is definitely uh, so, so deaf. There is a thing that Carrie James Marshall refers to as the Black aesthetic, meaning uh, when you um, talk about a Black experience, there are certain tropes that make up that. So I was really interested in what made a kind of like uh, the tropes of Black Atlanta, if you will. And so uh, building these kind of mythos, this expansion of the Black imaginary for me, it came into these, these girls. And one of the things that's really distinct about them and one of the terminologies or characteristics of Black Atlanta aesthetics that was repeated was the Atlanta child murders. And if you look at the, the young lady's eyes, all of them have like these kind of humongous eye features that are trapped in maybe like these kind of boxes, unorthodox shapes. Those eyes are actually images of either uh, the victims themselves or their family members. And what does it mean to carry these histories with us, right? So we have like this future, this present, these children that play here now, uh, and whether they are aware or unawares, uh, I was thinking about the freedom that the children had playing at Perkinson Park. And I was just thinking about that trap or lack therein of freedom for those of us who kind of grew up late seventies, early eighties. And during that time of Atlanta child murders, I remember my mother speaking about her fears for us. I remember Care Watch. I remember, do you know where your children are, right? And so just this kind of language of carrying histories and, and being in the present and looking toward a positive future. What does it mean? You know, we all carry our generational past with us. And what does that mean to carry the history of what has happened here at, in Atlanta that by and large, many of us natives feel like it's still unresolved, right? And so looking for ways to speak about a difficult matter in a beautiful way. And that is the painting, Carry the Weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry the Weight has a compilation of, of images piled high on top of a, a young lady's head with a gold chain. Um, I was thinking about um, the Moorside tribe, for those of you who are familiar with the Moorside tribe, uh, based close near Ethiopia. They're a tribe that wears, uh, the women wear lip plates, but they also adorn their crowns with the things that are around them. 
and I began to adorn the crowns of these young ladies with watermelon <laughs> and things like shea butter and images of ancestors. Uh, there are and, and candies and the pink pig, richest pink pig. So mm -hmm. like there are a couple of things that are piled upon um, the heads of, I believe, at least two figures. One even has the head of um, Maynard Jackson. I believe Maynard would by and large be considered the whiz of Atlanta for, for many of us. He was such a, a powerful, dominant an amazing figure to me. And he uh, laid a lot of groundwork for who and what Atlanta is today. And so what does it mean to be a powerhouse figure, uh, especially at the time? He also was, you know, alive during and, and handling the Atlanta child murders then. But what does it mean to like, yeah, just, just have these kind of imaginations that are true and that are real and that we kind of pile upon the bodies of, of our future. Something I wanted to touch upon in your solo exhibition at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery, in between your collages on the wall are blue silhouettes of the works, and this is very effective. It makes the girls' figures almost look supernatural. Was, was that your intent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they appear lifelike. They look like deities. I am interested in creating these kind of protagonists in my work that walk around in Atlanta land. And I'm interested in empowering Black women and Black girls. And when was the last time you have ever seen <laughs> an African fawn or an African satyr? <laughs> Or African centaur, they are so superimposed. They do appear lifelike. While I love the photographic series and, and the hybrid images that are displayed on the wall with them, I would say they're probably the most dominant part of that exhibition. Yeah, and I now realize what you're referencing when you mix some of the portraits of the young girls with limbs or body parts of zebras. You mentioned the centaur. Greek mythology isn't the only mythology. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very true. Here you are educating us with these images. You mentioned empowerment. Shaniqua, how can these works help empower young Black girls to see themselves in new light? Yeah, I am interested in taking over spaces and environments in which a young Black girl can walk into a gallery or a museum and see herself. You know, the language of hybridity is so antiquated. It's hundreds and thousands of years old <laughs> where humans have attached themselves to the animals so that we can feel courageous, brave, empowered, godlike with elegance and speed. And so I am, I am looking for Black girls to be able to see themselves as those things. Uh, you are courageous. You are beautiful. You are elegant. You are empowered. And I see you in museum and gallery spaces, white wall spaces. It is important to see yourself reflected in, in massive institutions, right? So if I were to walk into a museum and the only thing that is reflected is any and everything except me, what does that say? What does that tell me about myself? Am I not worthy of sainthood? <laughs> Am I not worthy of divinity? And I want... Black women and Black girls to see themselves as divine. Artist Shaniqua Gay, her work, If I Were Not Here, is on view and for sale at Maison Hideoki through December 9th. And a selection of photo collage works is on view at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery through December 23rd. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Tomorrow, Saturday, December 4th at 2 p.m., 
Meridian Herald presents their 28th annual Southern Folk Advent Service. Beloved Atlanta Braves opera singer, tenor Timothy Miller, will have several solos with the Meridian Chorale, led by artistic director Stephen Darcy. And bluegrass gospel music will be led by Leah Calvert with friends. Admission is free at the Old Church in Oxford, Georgia. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Monday at 11 a.m. Atlanta bassist and children's book author Divinity Rock stops by. Plus, we'll learn about the Arctic Dinosaur Exhibition on view at Fernbank Science Center. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.